Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome you not only to Element Church, but to the final week of our study and our series in the book of James. If you want to follow along with us this morning, uh, along with all the scripture passages that we're going to read and talk about, as well as links to many of the things that you just heard about uh, in the announcements, all of that can be found, found in the Bible app, which you can access by scanning this QR code. It's probably the easiest and quickest way to get there. Um, so what I want to do as we wrap up our series and our study in James is just to, to take sort of a bird's eye view on some of the things that we've talked about and some of the things that we have covered thus far as we close out this letter. Now if you remember, and some of you may be newer or you were only here for parts of that series, and so we'll make sure that you're caught up and you're not left behind at all. But James is the half-brother of Jesus himself. After Mary gave birth to Jesus, her and Joseph went on to have a very normal marriage that conceived normal children, um, and James was one of the younger brothers of Jesus. Now you can imagine what it would be like to grow up being in the shadow of your older brother Jesus. Uh, most of us would not respond well to that, and James is no exception. James, in fact, didn't even believe in his brother while his brother was alive. He was impressed with his brother, but he was not convinced that Jesus was this long-awaited Jewish Messiah who God had sent to bring freedom to his people, to turn the, the whole world order upside down and to inaugurate this kingdom of God. James watched his brother perform miracles. James listened to his brother teach. We see several times in the Gospels where James is around. He's hanging out. He's checking out Jesus, but he did not believe in Jesus until the resurrection. If you can imagine for a moment, what would it take for you to be convinced that your older brother or sister, that one of your siblings was God in the flesh Probably nothing shy than you watching them get executed and then a few days later walk out of the grave. Like to watch them resurrected would probably be the only thing that would ever convince you of something like that. And that's what did it for James. When he met Jesus resurrected from the grave, he was all in. He went from being interested in Jesus to a fanatic follower of Jesus. James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the, one of the key leading central churches in Christianity in the first century throughout the Roman Empire. James went from being not a believer to one of the greatest leaders of the early church. Even people like Peter and Paul would often refer to James for his wisdom before making a decision. Now, as we look at James's letter, James writes this letter. This is probably, we don't know it for sure, but probably the earliest document, written document of our New Testament, probably written in the early 40s AD to a group of churches who are going through a lot of challenging situations. And so he's writing this letter to really act as their pastor. I mean, he's sort of like one of the key pastors in the first century. So he's sort of acting like a pastor. He's giving them some encouragement. He is not going to shy away from hurting the, their feelings. He's going to say exactly what's on his mind. He's going to tell them exactly what he thinks they need to do. And he's going to give them the instruction they need to live the life 
that is required of a Jesus follower. Because James experienced such a radical transformation in his own life, he has a hard time understanding how anyone else could claim to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but it not affect every part of who they are. And so James wants us to understand what the resurrection means for us and how it should affect how we live in our daily lives. So right as we open up the letter of James, we're introduced to three topics that if you've been a part of this study with us over the last few months, you've seen these topics reoccurring over and over and over and over. James starts his letter by talking about testing, talking about wisdom, and talking about wealth. And those are some of the three key themes that we've seen throughout the whole letter. Right from the beginning all the way to the end, James talks about when we face difficult circumstances, that we are called to remain steadfast and patient in the face of difficulty. And seeing the life of Jesus and knowing who he was and what he was about and the things that he taught give us the confidence to remain steadfast and patient in the face of testing and difficult circumstances. James talks a lot in the whole letter about wisdom. As a matter of fact, many people have called James essentially the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now you may be unfamiliar with what Proverbs is. Proverbs is a book in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that was written before Jesus. And Proverbs is just a book on wisdom. But what makes James different than Proverbs is that Proverbs gives us gives us general wise principles that apply to daily life in most circumstances. But for James, all wisdom is rooted in Jesus himself. All wisdom in how to live, in what to think, in all circumstances is rooted in the person of Jesus, in what he taught and the things that he did. And then James also has a lot to say about wealth. But in James, as in the rest of the Bible, the problem really isn't wealth. Wealth and money is neutral. It's not bad and it's not good. But with money and with wealth, we can do good or we can do evil. And that's all determined not by the money, but by the condition of our hearts. And James talks about how wealth can be one of the great exposers of really what is in our hearts. And that wealth can be one of the greatest distractions the world has ever known. Because it can distract our souls and draw us away from God himself. Now as we've gone through this study in the book of James, there's been a few other things that you may have noticed that make this book unique. There are 108 verses in this entire letter. And in those 108 verses, there are 50 imperative verbs. That's a fancy way of saying there are 50 commands in this letter. James has a lot to say about what we should do. James is not interested in us just knowing the right answers, having all the head knowledge of what's good. He expects us to do something with it. It is not enough to just give the right answer. We must live it out. Another thing that makes this letter unique is that it's practically a sermon. Like if you just read through the letter of James, you can envision this fiery old guy just 
giving it to his audience. I mean, telling them exactly what he thinks with this fire in his eyes and this passion in his voice, just bringing down the house with this sermon right in your face. It's probably outside of the book of Hebrews, the letter in all of the New Testament that reads most like a sermon. And if this were to be a sermon, what would it be based on? Well, the answer to that question is easy. It would be based on Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You see, all of the topics that James picks up on in his letter, how often he actually quotes his own brother's words, come from the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached that is recorded for us in the book of Matthew. In this sermon, James, I mean, Jesus talks about these same ideas, about remaining steadfast and patient in the face of difficulties, trusting on the Lord and not on ourselves. Jesus talks a lot about wisdom and how the wisdom of God stands in stark contrast to the wisdom of this world and that the wisdom of the kingdom of God looks radically different than what the wisdom of this world says. Jesus even talks about wealth in his sermon. As a matter of fact, a lot of what James has to say in his letter is based upon Jesus' teaching of wealth in that sermon. All of the letter of James is founded on the life and the ministry of Jesus. James finds inspiration for everything that he wants to share with his churches. And since you and I are reading this today, that means us. Everything that James wanted to say, all the good, all the hard things to listen to, all the things that hurt our feelings and make us feel good or bad, everything is rooted in what Jesus did and in what Jesus said. And as we close out the letter today, as we turn our attention to the final few verses in which we talk about prayer, what James is doing is no different than he's done in the entire letter and that he is going to find his inspiration for teaching on prayer from the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because for Jesus, prayer was central. We see that 29 times in the New Testament, Jesus uh, teaches on prayer. He teaches us how to pray and how not to pray. He teaches us when to pray and why to pray. He teaches us what to pray for. But Jesus didn't just talk about it, Jesus lived it. He did it. He modeled it. 38 times in the four Gospels were given examples of Jesus himself praying. Jesus prayed alone and he prayed in public. Jesus prayed before meals. Jesus prayed before ministry. Jesus prayed before healing people. Jesus prayed after healing people. Jesus prayed in front of others. Jesus prayed for others. Jesus prayed before making major decisions. Jesus prayed in the morning. Jesus prayed at night. The life and teaching of Jesus is centered on prayer. His connection with his own Father in heaven both to teach us, to model it for us, and as an expression of how life and ministry are to be done. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to what James has to say about prayer. But then we're going to see how that actually connects to the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we're going to turn our attention to the last verses of James. And we'll be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so as we start to talk and examine this passage, there are a couple things that I want us to focus on. And there are several instances in which James tells us when we should pray. And the first one begins with suffering. That in times of suffering, we should pray. This, like all other things James teaches, is modeled in the life of Jesus. From the cross, Jesus prayed three times. Leading up to the crucifixion, the night before he was going to be crucified, when he has a moment to stop and to reflect on what he knew was coming, Jesus spends that night in prayer. Let me show you just a portion of Jesus' prayer that night before he would be arrested and executed. And he came out and went, as was his custom, custom, to the Mount of Olives. This is a hillside just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And he said to them, that's his disciples who were with him, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, here's what is interesting, at least one aspect of this that's interesting. So this is from the Gospel of Luke. It was written by Luke. And what we learn in Luke is that, uh, in Acts, excuse me, is that Luke is a medical doctor. So Luke knows his stuff. And there's an actual medical condition called hematidrosis when individuals can literally sweat blood. I don't know if you uh, get physical symptoms when you're stressed. Whenever you're under a great deal of stress, uh, everybody feels differently. For some of you, you get terrible headaches or migraines when stress is really bad. Um, For me, I feel it in my lower back. That's where if I'm really stressed and things are just really difficult in life, like I'll wake up and just my lower back will be really tight and really sore. You may feel it in your neck or your shoulders. We all have physical reactions to mental stress and emotional stress. 
That we all recognize. But there is a few documented instances where people have undergone such extreme stress that the pressure begins to build in their body to the, to the level that the capillaries begin to burst under the level of pressure and stress they're feeling. And that blood mixes in with the sweat glands and, and people have been known to sweat blood under extreme duress and stress. So Luke, a physician, knows exactly what is occurring right here as Jesus drops to his knees in this garden, knowing that from that garden he will be arrested, betrayed by one of his best friends, and he will begin a march to his own execution. And he knows exactly what's coming. And under the weight and the pressure of that moment, not just the physical pain that awaits him, but knowing that he is about to take on himself the sin of the world. The pressure builds so great in his body that he begins to sweat blood. Do you think Jesus understood stress? you think Jesus understood pain, and difficulties, and persecution and suffering? And in the face of it, Jesus' response is to pray. And to pray these words. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Saying to his own Father in heaven, I surrender to you what I know must occur. I don't want it. I don't like it. I know what is, a, what is waiting for me. But your will be done. James says to us, if if any of us are suffering, pray. Just like we see in the life of Jesus, in the face of suffering, our response is prayer. And a prayer of surrender, recognizing that most often what we suffer from is out of our control. It's out of our hands. And so we give it over to God, who's the only one who can control it. Is anyone suffering? Then let him pray. Here's another instance in which James wants us to think about prayer. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, I know here it actually says sing, but if you think about it, what is singing praise to God? It's a form of prayer, just with a little rhythm and pitch, at least for some of us. Some of us, even when we sing, it's not in pitch or good rhythm, but singing is prayer. And this was familiar to Jesus and his life. We're actually told on the night before his execution, we just read about his prayer in the garden, but before he goes to the garden, he shares one last meal with his disciples, and we're told in two different places in the Gospels that after their supper together, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn together. From the cross, Jesus actually quotes Psalm 22, the first verse. The Psalms are a book of hymns. They're prayers that we sing. Jesus quotes from one even while he's hanging from the cross. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus actually incorporated more of that psalm into his life. 
And in Hebrews 2.12, it actually quotes Jesus in saying this, saying, and I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The author Hebrews here is putting those words, it's a quote from Psalm 22, but he's putting those words in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus sang psalms of praise. So if any of us is cheerful, our response is prayer. Maybe sometimes those prayers are audible and go along with some music. So if you're cheerful, you should pray. You should sing praise. And then there's another instance in which James wants us to think about prayer. And he says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and let them pray. Now Jesus, if you know anything about his life, is no stranger to bringing healing to the sick and the hurting. I mean, that's a hallmark of what we know about who Jesus is and what he did. And Jesus didn't always pray before he would heal someone because in and of himself, Jesus had the authority to do it. As God in the flesh, Jesus could heal people. But sometimes he did pray. Look here in Mark 7. It says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now, I, I recognize this is a weird word. So, you know, we're reading this in English. That's obvious. But it's translated from Greek because the New Testament was written in the first century in Koine Greek. That was just the common language of people in the Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Now, he probably read and spoke Hebrew when he was in the synagogue or in interacting with certain religious people, but his everyday language, Jesus, was Aramaic. And, and this is actually an Aramaic, Aramaic word, which, which was transliterated into Greek, which was transliterated into English, so at least we can pronounce it like Jesus would, Ephatha. And it just means to be opened. So Jesus didn't always pray before healing, but sometimes he did. And here's why he would sometimes pray before healing someone, not because he had to. He had the authority in and of himself. But we get a great example in John 11. And this is just before Jesus will raise his best, one of his dear friends, Lazarus, from the dead. Lazarus has been dead several days. And just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus prays this. And so they took away the stone that was covering up the tomb where Lazarus was. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So sometimes Jesus would pray out loud because he wanted people to see the model and the example he was setting in prayer. He wanted people to hear. He wanted people to understand what he was doing. So you and I don't have the authority to heal people. You and I don't have that ability. But what we do have is a relationship with the one who can do it. And so, is anyone sick? James would say the answer is prayer. And so as you can see, James, he's getting his influence from Jesus. How Jesus lived, the things that Jesus taught, the example that he set. 
Now, there's one more thing in James that I want to highlight, and then I want to give us some encouraging takeaways as we close. So we're going to turn our attention, we've already read it, but to just verse 16. And in verse 16 of James chapter 5, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here's what I want you to know and what we see, not just from James, but from all of the Bible. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness. But we confess sins to one another for healing. We don't confess to another person for forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is, a, is a matter between us and God. But James recognizes that the Christian journey is not one done in isolation. The Christian journey was designed to be done in community. I mean, even think about what James taught on prayer. Right? If you're sick, what should you do? Should you just pray for yourself? No, you should invite others to come in and pray with you and for you. Are you cheerful? Should you pray by yourself? Well, you can certainly sing by yourself, but generally we understand that we gather together to sing. Not that you shouldn't. You should sing on your own. There should be a time of personal worship for you in your life. But most often we think of worship, we think of it in a corporate setting. James recognizes that this whole thing, this whole journey, our prayer life, our connection with God is not private. It's very personal, but it's not private. James said, listen, as we understand throughout the teaching of the whole Bible, we confess our sins to God for forgiveness. We confess our sins to one another for healing. For some of you this morning, this might be the biggest paradigm shift of your entire year. Because you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you say, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. I'm sorry I did it again. I'm sorry I did it again. I promised you I wouldn't do it again, but I did. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better. You've been forgiven. But there are some sins in your life, there are some habits or addictions that have a hold of you that you cannot break free from. You pray to God and he will forgive you. But healing will begin to happen when you start confessing to someone else. Now I know that's scary. I know it's embarrassing. I know the moment that many of us think of doing something like that, guilt and shame rise up in us. We don't want anyone to know. And as long as we take that approach, it'll continue to have a hold on our lives. You want to find freedom and healing? Don't just confess to God. You should, you must, but confess to someone else. One last thought while we're on this passage. Prayer works. Prayer works. Now, that doesn't mean it's always immediate. It doesn't mean that 
God's answer to our prayers will always be in alignment with how we wanted him to answer. But prayer works. And if prayer works, then we must utilize it. Prayer has incredible power. It allows us to tap into our relationship with God, a God who is above and supreme all other things. The only one who has the ability to control this world. Prayer works. Even when we're not confident that God's listening or cares, we know from the Bible that he does and he is. So here's three takeaways that I just want to provide as an encouragement as we're talking about prayer and that center on Jesus. Here's number one. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you while he lived on this earth. Now, you may not have known that, but he did. In John chapter 17, the whole chapter is one long prayer from Jesus. Again, it's taking place that night of his betrayal and arrest the day before his execution. He prays for his disciples that God would protect them and encourage them because he knew what was about to happen and he knew how painful it was going to be for them to watch Jesus be murdered. Uh, this Messiah that they had given up their whole lives to follow. And he's praying for their strength, their encouragement. He's praying for all the things they're going to do in the future as they carry on his ministry and mission once he's gone. And then he says this, I do not ask for these only, he had been praying for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for you. When he got done praying for the disciples on the night he was going to be arrested, he said, God, I'm not only praying for these 12 sitting around me, I am praying for all of those who will come to believe in me through this word, through this gospel message. Jesus prayed for you. He believes in prayer enough that he prayed for you. Number two, Jesus continues to pray for you. Look at Romans 8.34. And who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus not only prayed for you, he continues to pray for you. He continues to intercede with his Father, who now he sits at the right hand of, praying for you. Right now, praying for you. And not only does Jesus continue to pray for us, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit actually help us now in prayer. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
We have all been in a place, maybe you've been in this place your whole life, that you don't know what to pray for. God's not looking for special, magical, just the right words. He's looking for your heart. And if you will come to him with a heart that is open and humble, willing to listen, open to confess, you don't have to have the right words. Because even the Spirit will intercede on your behalf when you don't know what to pray, when you don't have the words to express what's going on in your mind and your heart, the Spirit will pray on your behalf. So you don't even have to be a master of prayer. There's no magical formula. There's no rankings. There's no junior varsity of prayer. You just come to God open. And even when you don't know what to say, he will say it for you. And with that, together, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think if we're all honest, most of the time we just don't know what to pray for. We don't feel adequate, like we have the right words. We know that we're inadequate as people because we continually sin and mess up. Jesus, thank you for setting the example for us of what prayer looks like. Thank you for answering so many of our questions about why we pray and how we pray and when to pray and what to pray. Jesus, thank you for praying for us for thinking of us on, on your last night before you would be killed. You were thinking of us, and we don't deserve that. Thank you for praying for us, and thank you for continuing to pray for us. Spirit, thank you that you, that you express things that we don't even have words to express. Thank you that you put words to just these feelings in our heart and our minds. Lord, in this moment, would you be honored by the way we approach you, by the way in which we come to you in prayer through our thoughts, through our words, and through the song that we're about to sing. We humbly come before you because we have nothing and you are all. So we come before you in humility with open arms, open hearts, and open minds. Lord, would you speak to us now?